you're listening to the Abide Podcast. To find out more about Abide, go to AbideChurchFL.com and enjoy today's message. Lean in and to say, I know he has something for me. Can you believe that? Like, I just, every person in here, he has something for you. And so I just want to say this, the hungry will be fed. If you're Levite, I didn't receive anything, you're probably already full. So like, let's just empty yourself a little bit and let's allow God to fill you with something new. Amen. Let's honor Jesse as he comes up. Check, check. All right. First part's over. We're going to have some fun today. Let's go. Um, Something I like to do is a little uh, full participation exercise to get us going, get the juices flowing. How many... Of you, raise your hand if you believe that hearing God's voice should be Christianity 101. Right? I agree with you. That's good. We're on the same page so far. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of times it's not. We often, many of us struggle to hear God's voice or or feel like we've only heard him a couple of times. And so I want to do something this morning that is going to help us hear him. And I want to point, first of all, to 1 Corinthians 14. Go ahead and throw that up there. If there's anybody back there. Is that good? All right, 1 Corinthians 14, 3. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to substitute the word prophecy in this passage for hearing God, because that's really what prophecy is. It's hearing God, okay? But when someone prophesies or hears God, he speaks to encourage people to build them up and to bring them comfort. So hearing God, the function of hearing God is to build people up, to bring them comfort, to edify them, to encourage them, all right? To fill them with hope. And that's what I want to do a little bit of this morning. So... I'm going to ask for a couple of volunteers. How about you in the black shirt? Can you help me out for a second? Just for a second. It's going to be painless, I promise. It's going to be fun. No, yeah, I'm pointing to you. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And then you on the end in the white shirt. Can you come up for a second and help me out? Woo, let's give them a round of applause here. Yeah. So you can stand here and face that way. And you can come over here and face that way. So when I count to three, I want you two to just start prophesying. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Just saw two stomachs hit the floor. I want to pray, and then I want to ask God to speak one word to each of you in the audience. And that word, I believe, is going to be in line with encouraging, uplifting, edifying, exhorting and then I want you to raise your hand, and I want you to speak that word for either one of these two. Just remind us of your name. Christy. It's Christy. Greg? Greg. Christy and Greg. All right. Father, I thank you for your voice. I thank you for the ability to hear you. I thank you for the intimacy that is available to experience you, to know what your voice sounds like. I ask that you open up our hearts this morning, open up the ears of our hearts so that we can hear you speak clearly. And I ask you to speak one word for either Christy or Greg this morning. Amen. When you have a word, you feel like God has spoken a word to you for one of them, one word, raise your hand. Intelligence, for which one? Greg, intelligence. What is it? Joy. Good, yeah. Love. Satisfy? Son of God. Good. Good word. Yeah. Ear gates. Okay. Good. Yeah. Understood here? Yeah. Faithful. (laughs) Yeah. Leader. Promises filled and king. Good. Passionate. Delighted. Delighted. Good. Yeah. Bold. Anybody else? Yeah. Courageous. Good word. Victory. 
<clears throat> yeah. Freedom? For which one? Both of them. You receive it? You receive it? Strength? Greg? Never alone. Forgiving hope. Daniel. Seen. Seen. Good word. Seen. Yeah. Hey, man, let's give him a hand. Thanks, guys. Yeah. I want you to remember the words that were spoken this morning. Did we hear any words of shame, condemnation, guilt? Did any of you out there sitting in the audience who are hearing God have to confess their sins before they heard the voice of God speak to them? No. God wanted to be with you in the midst of whatever you're dealing with at this moment. To desire to be with you, to speak to you, so that you hear, you hear his voice clearly. I like to do this exercise, um, number one, because it goes with what I want to talk about today, so it fits nicely, but also because I know that every time I've done this, Everybody receives something. And so if the rest of the message is trash, at least you got that. So there, the pressure's off me. <laughs> okay. As I was, over the last couple of weeks, as I've just been sitting and reflecting with God in, in the time that I spend with him, I have felt, and here, and just hearing and discerning what I feel like God is, is taking us into as a body, I sense that the Lord is, is wanting to bring us into a greater level of intimacy as a body. That we're going with him, that we're, that, we're, that we're walking forward into greater levels of relationship, greater levels of vulnerability, greater levels of being able to experience him in relationship and partnership and, and everything that intimacy entails. Uh, we see that with the institution of the burning hearts, Right? that we're still doing next week, right? Still on for next weekend. The, the weekly, the weekday prayer, Wednesday nights, and it's spread to other days of the week. There is an emphasis here on being, abiding in his presence. And that's where we're going, and that's what we're chasing, and that's what we're going after. On a larger scale, like we need it here because this is what I feel God is calling us into. And when God is calling us into something to move forward, it's for a purpose, right? He's not just doing something to do something. It's a preparation. It's what we need to deal with what's coming down the road, what he wants to move us into. Now, on a larger scale, if you kind of, on on, for painting in broad strokes, you can look out of your door, go into the marketplace, turn on whatever news that you want to turn on, and see that in, in my lifetime... Never before have we needed a people that know what it is to abide than today. The world is looking for that. We are filled with tension in the moments in these days, in this season right now, where we are as a nation, where we are as a people. And we need, we need a people who knows what it is to be loved by him and to love him. And I think a piece of that and I think a large piece of that is recognizing how beautiful we are. I think that a lot of times when we talk about intimacy with the Lord and what it means to move closer to him, I think a lot of times it's all about how we view God. And that's certainly a huge piece of it. But it matters how we view ourselves. It matters what we think of ourselves. And a couple weeks ago, Tyler preached, preached a message about being able to leave the, back it, the baggage, right? putting down the old man, right? and moving forward without the baggage. And what that, what that does, it, it allows us, it gives us the freedom to be able to view ourselves in a better way than we had previously. Yeah, come on. When we recognize that, when we catch that vision of beauty for ourselves, we're able to view ourselves as not as lowly, perhaps, as we used to. And I want to take another step toward that today. The, root, the passage that I want to ground in this morning is Romans 12.3. Oh, it's up back there. There we go. Romans 12.3 in the NIV. 
For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in according with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, what I want to point out about that is a lot of us can read that and take away, don't think of yourself highly. Don't think of yourself more highly than you are. But let's look at that. Paul is not saying don't think of yourself as highly. Paul's don't say, Paul is not saying don't think highly of yourself. He's saying don't think higher of yourself than you ought to. Now, the contrast of that is also true. There's nothing in this passage that says think of yourself as lowly. There is nothing in there. What does it say? Paul says, think of yourself in accordance with sound judgment, according to what you believe God feels and says to you. What is it that God says to you? What is it that he says is okay to feel about yourself? And that's what I want to explore here this morning. I think a common thought many of us hold regarding ourselves as we consider who we were and who we are now maybe the pre- and post-salvation us, so to speak, is that we were corrupt, fundamentally bad people who became and are becoming beautiful. But I hope to show this morning that we were always beautiful, worthy people who are becoming even more beautiful. On that path forward, I want to discuss what I feel like the problem is that comes up against that. I want to share why it's important to deconstruct that problem. I want to lay a new foundation, and then I feel like there's, a, there's a, an appropriate response that I, I want to lead you through. Now, the effect of something like this can be challenging. It can create tension inside of us. But I want to let you know it's okay to feel tension if we never allowed ourselves to be challenged and feel tension, we would never grow past the place we are right now. It's also going to bring freedom to some of you. The freedom to believe what you always hoped was true about yourself. Permission, so to speak, to believe what you hoped was true. So let's talk about the problem. How many of you have heard of the doctrine of total depravity? Raise your hand if you've heard of that. Yep, a couple of you. I think it's, it's mostly becoming something of old. But for those of you who haven't heard of it, uh, this is part of the Calvinist doctrine. It's part of, the, part of the five points of Calvinism. The tulip, so to speak, is number one. It's, uh, it's hit pretty hard in those circles. And it's not that I think that uh, any, any of us in here are, are necessarily card-carrying Calvinists. Um, and if you are, that's fine. There's no problem with that. I mean, come on, let's go. Um, so, but it, but I, what I do think is that there is a remnant, a sliver of this total depravity doctrine that has infiltrated the church, whether we know it or not. Total depravity is the doctrine that says humans, as a result of the fall, are thoroughly corrupt. Or in other words, people are fundamentally bad. As blank slates. So you think a blank slate human? Infant, right? Hasn't had the chance to do or become really anything yet. So when I say blank slate, that's what I'm referring to. Uh, it says that it's only as God moves us along in his plan that we are any good at all. God only desires and is pleased with us when we come into salvation. Anything that we could ever do before that point is thoroughly displeasing to God. Now, let me say again, it's not that I think that all of us in here believes that doctrine wholeheartedly. What I think is that there is a remnant, and I, I said this before, but I want to repeat it. I think that there is a remnant or a sliver in us that has, that has pervaded the church. And it has caused us to think much lower of ourselves than what I think God intended. 
I think that many times we tend to celebrate this lowly opinion of ourselves, as if, as if there's something righteous or pious about believing that we are scum. as if somehow our ugliness elevates his beauty. But I think that, and this could be a philosophical question, right? I don't really want to get into philosophy, but I'm willing to have a conversation. I, I think beauty is accentuated by beauty. Can you put up meadow number one, please? Now, Kara has no desire to ever be in Kansas, so she might not think that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. That is, look at the blue skies, the clouds, the grass. I think, could there be a wind going through there? Like a golden wave, right? Like, I think that's beautiful. I'm probably not the only one in here that thinks that's beautiful. Go ahead and put up a meadow two. Wow. I think that's more beautiful. I think that is accentuated beauty. We have the feel, but now look at all the colors. And it looks like the sun is setting a little bit. That is so much more. That is even more beautiful. Go ahead and put up beach one. <laughs> How many think that's beautiful? I think that's beautiful too. Go and put up beach two. <laughs> that is accentuated beauty. I don't need ugly to tell me what's beautiful. I know what's beautiful. I need beauty to tell me what's beautiful. Now I want to clarify, you can go ahead and take that down. Unless you guys want to leave it up, you can look at that. <laughs> no, you need to focus on what I say. I want to clarify here before we go any further. My argument is not saying that we are beautiful apart from God. A lot of times we want to say it's either or. Sometimes we have trouble putting things together. But it's not either or, it's and with. It's God's DNA with our uniqueness. So on we move into deconstruction of the problem. And I want to I share a couple of reasons why it's important to deconstruct this doctrine of viewing ourselves a little higher than, or a little lower even, or maybe a little even just minusculely higher than pond scum. The first reason I think we need to deconstruct this is because I don't really think it makes sense. I don't think there's anything necessarily virtuous about Loving something without value. I think that it's a little silly. Now, something may be rising up in, inside of you that says, yeah, well, people often put themselves and stack a lot of ugliness on top of themselves. And my response to that is, yeah, but that person has never lost their value. I'm talking about something that is completely devoid of value, if there was something that has absolutely no value or is thoroughly corrupt, I don't know if there's anything necessarily virtuous about loving that thing. I think maybe it could be argued that it would be a silly waste of time and resources and mental capacity to love that thing. Another reason why I don't feel like it makes sense is that if God only loves what he has done in us, his work in us, then really God only loves himself. And if that's true, then whatever God does isn't really about us at all. And it can get pretty weird fast, if you follow that out. But Jesus spends time with the worst of society, and he loves them in the midst of their ugliness. He doesn't treat us 
as though we're thoroughly corrupt, I would assert, as we walk through or we look through the biblical narrative. In fact, I would say that there are some of us in this room who have pretty dynamic conversion stories that would testify to the experience of God's desire to be with you at your worst. Raise your hand if you have a conversion testimony. That was a lot. Thank goodness, because that wasn't true. I don't know where I was going from there. <laughs> throw this whole thing away. For those of you who raise your hand, you don't need to answer this out loud. Just consider, did God make you get clean first before he came and communed with you to move you toward himself? No. That came later, right? So I don't think it makes very much sense. The other reason, or one of the other reasons, is because I feel, I believe that this problem of total depravity or thinking lowly of ourselves hurts relationship with God. Go ahead and put up the man and God pick. Sure. I think this picture says something about both participants here. You see God up on the throne, man down here at the bottom. I think that it, it says God is too holy and man is too depraved. I think there's something wrong with both of those statements. I think that this conception, and, and some, of, some of us find comfort in this. Some of, this, is, this is the reflection of how some of us feel like our interaction with God the Father, what that's like. And if that's how you view that, then that's, that's, that's okay. That's why I'm speaking this. And, and that's why some of you might start to feel a little bit of tension as I speak about this. Based on this dynamic, some of us spend the initial portion of our time spent with him telling him everything about what's wrong with us. I want you to think a little bit about a relationship that you have, somebody that you love more than anything, and what that might be like if every, every time you spent time together for the first 15 minutes, all they did was tell you everything about what's wrong with them. Would you enjoy that? Would that somehow make that person seem a little more holy, a little more righteous? I think that's that when somebody we love starts to constantly tell you everything that's wrong with them, I think it hurts us a little bit. Because they're not seeing what we see. And they're feeling like they're so depraved that they have to do something to get clean before they can spend time with us. I think that's a misconception, not only about ourselves, but also a misconception about God and who he wants to be and how he wants to relate to us. I'm not against confession at all. But true confession is accompanied by a change of heart. And that can only happen when you know that you're unconditionally loved. And you only know that you're unconditionally loved and accepted when you are loved and accepted with ugly draped all over you. Confession without that revelation is only an attempt to appease an angry, demanding God. It's just a religious exercise. And that's why we perpetuate the cycle. That's why we continually do this. When we come and spend time with him, we have to confess. Some view... That's okay, you can leave it off. Some view the Father as exactly this, distant, unapproachable, angry, requiring appeasement prior to engagement. Kara, can you come and share your experience, please? Told you, this is full participation. You better (laughs) be on your toes. I may call you up here next. Um, Some of you, a lot of you were here when we shared our marriage testimony, um, I don't know, some months back. Um, But after that time, I had confessed to Jesse after God called me to through many prophetic words. In fact, the irony is that 
the prophetic words that I received were all like um, the two participants at the beginning received. They were all uplifting and encouraging and not calling out the ugly. Um, but after that time, because it was a word spoken that God was calling me to do something difficult, I had a struggle with spending time with God because the fear was that anytime I spent time with God, he was going to call me to do something difficult instead of just calling me to be in communion with him. And so there was a struggle there, a tension that I had with feeling like the only, the only thing that came of time with God or um, confession was challenge and difficulty. Do you want me to? I'll, Whatever you feel I'll like you're done, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you can take that back to the Gio. Thank that's, you. That's not how I feel anymore. She still feels that way, right? <laughs> no, she doesn't have the mic anymore. I can say whatever I want. I still have to go home today, I guess. <laughs> and this dynamic, the dynamic that Kara shared, the dynamic of this feeling of distance between us and the Father, his love becomes conditional. We must act before we receive something from him that is a condition and it contradicts the biblical narrative of God who is self-sacrificial and unconditionally loving as long as we view God in this way how can he ever be a safe relationship for us we must keep our distance because it's not safe and I think that this exists in varying degrees inside of us I think that some of us, it's just a little bit. I think that in some of us, it's a lot. I think some of us have gotten as close, as close to God as we possibly can in where we're at. Well, I guess that's true for all of us at this point. But there's varying degrees of this existing in us, I think. Another reason I feel like we need to deconstruct this problem is because it hurts relationships with others. Community, I believe, is one of the most important things, if not the most important priorities, God's heart for us. Community between us and him, community between us and each other. And for a lot of the same reasons, it hurts our relationship with God, thinking of ourselves as scum and lowly hurts our relationships with others because we will always hold part of ourselves back. There will not be a freedom to release ourselves and to fully be vulnerable with somebody else. And that's okay for most relationships. But if that's never okay for any relationships, it might be a problem. Another reason, and the final reason I'll talk about this morning, why, uh, why we need to deconstruct the problem, is because I believe it's making us sick. When we constantly view ourselves as lowly, we, what has happened with our knowledge or without it we have allowed sin to become the centerpiece of our identity. The way we view ourselves and then subsequently the way that we view everyone else is through the lens of sin. Because it's very difficult, if not impossible, to compartmentalize these things. What's true in this case for us will bleed over into every part of our lives. We're supposed to be looking at ourselves through the lens of Christ. We've been given his mind. We've been grafted into him. We are supposed to be seeing what he sees. And if he sees us thoroughly corrupt and, and scum, then I guess that we're on the right track. But I don't think that's the case. Another reason it makes us sick is because it fractures us into two people. I think that many times, especially those of us who have been Christians for a long time, we tend to think of our lives as pre- and post-salvation. We tend to look back at the person that we were before salvation and hate them. And then we love the person that we became after salvation. And like I said, what that does is it fractures us into two. We tend to be continually shamed by the old and hate the old and constantly be terrified that we, we, we will become the old again. 
The truth is, is that if you hate yourself back then, you hate yourself today, to one degree or another. Because as I said, it's very difficult to compartmentalize those things. You're the same person. Some of us need to hear that. It's, you're not two people, it's the same person. That person that you were back then, there was beauty back there. There was good back there. I know that when we think about that time of our lives, it's very difficult to see any of the beauty, but it was there. There were beautiful things about that person that you, that you were. And of course, there's beauty in you today. For these reasons, I want to lay a new foundation for us this morning. A foundation that says, there must be beauty that exists in us when we were just blank slates. There must be something beautiful about us, something desirable about us before we had the chance to do or become anything. Not, like I said, apart from God, but with him. Amanda Rangel. Amanda just had a little girl. She's amazing. Can Ruby do much of anything at this point beyond eat and sleep? Poop. No. Has she really had a chance to become or fulfill anything yet? Is she the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Absolutely. And I ask a question, not to you, because I don't want to put you on the spot anymore. But the question is, why? Why is she the most beautiful thing that Amanda has ever seen? And I, I would imagine that part of that answer, as I now put words in your mouth, <clears throat> because part, part of it is because Ruby came from her. Part of her is in Ruby. That's part of it. But then there's something else, something else that might be a little harder to define. But it's unmistakable. I think that it's her uniqueness. I think that it's her ability to connect. But understanding what it is is less important than understanding that it exists. Others of us have children in all stages of life who have made all sorts of ugly decisions at times. But the conviction of beauty we recognize at birth isn't easily overridden no matter how ugly the choices have become. Fathers may have a little, little trouble connecting in, and, uh, with, with this emotion or this revelation, but mothers certainly no matter what your kids do, there is always a part of you that remembers the ruby stage. That no matter what they've gotten into, there is beauty. And I would say to you, this is how God has always viewed us. Even when all that's obvious is the ugly. And I'll give you some examples. I'm going to give you three examples and the last one is my favorite, but I'm not going to skip there. I think, just as a little preamble before we get into that, I think that we need to understand that Jesus of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament are the same person. I think that it would be easy to say, oh yeah, I'm sure that you can show me examples of Jesus wanting to be with us uh, before we had a chance to get cleaned up. But that's Jesus. It's, no, we're talking about God. They're the same. We're not, we're not supposed to suppose they're, they're two different persons. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Hebrews 13, 8. Now, when we say that Jesus and God of the Old Testament are the same person, can it be hard to reconcile with some problems and build some tension? Yes. But in those circumstances, I've become comfortable with saying, I may not be able to tell you exactly what it means or reconcile those two things, but I feel more confidence of what it can't mean. And in this arena, 
I'm confident saying that if Jesus sees the beauty under the dirt and desires to be with us, then the same is true for the Father. The first example I have of this comes from the Old Testament, and it's in Exodus 19. So we have the writer of, of Exodus. Many have thought it to be Moses. So there's this, this grand portrait being painted of God being up on the mountain, and there's lightning and, and thunder and trumpets blaring and this grand scene of power and the almighty presence of, of God being on the mountain, and there's smoke and I mean, all these things going on. And then God says to Moses, he says, I want to come down the mountain and have my presence be a cloud. I want to speak to you, and I want you to bring the people close enough so they can hear me. Now, this is, a, this is Israel, right? This is a people, grumbling, whiny group of people, malcontents. If there was ever a reason to to smite thee, you know, this group of people probably fit the bill, especially considering a few chapters later they build an altar and an idol. I mean, come on. Who is this group of people? But nonetheless, nevertheless, God says he wants to come down and be with his people and to bring them close enough. And so that happens until they hear his voice. And they completely freak out. They run, they beg Moses to say, no, we're begging you. Hear him for us. If we hear him, we'll die. We can't be this close to the Father. The important thing that I take from this is that the decision to create distance wasn't God's. It was the people. In Judges 13, there is a a pretty fun story, and this is my second example, of uh, a time, and it states there right at the beginning, this this comes from Judges 13, 3 through 22, and I'm not going to read the whole thing from you, I'm going to summarize the story for you. But the first thing that the author tells us is that Israel was in a a state of, of grossness, is that a word? Grossness. They had abandoned God. There was really nothing that they were doing in this time that could be considered redemptive or, you know, anything. They had moved away from from God. And we have this this couple, Manoah and the woman. I'm sorry, that's, there's no name. Like, the author never gave a name for his wife. She is referred to as the woman through the, the entire story. But God appeared to Manoah's wife, and in the text, it refers to it as an angel of the Lord, and angel is capitalized, and Lord is capitalized. And scholars agree that that signifies a physical manifestation of Yahweh. So he appears to Manoah's wife and gives her her some instructions, so she's going to be pregnant, she's going to have a son, and this is what the instructions are for her son. And Manoah is, finds out about this when she comes back and tells him. And he is grieved that he missed out on the opportunity to experience this man of God. None of, neither of them at this point know that it was God that had showed up, which is amazing. So Manoah went to God in prayer and he said, please send this man of God again. And so what does God do? He honors the request. And he comes back a second time. And he affirmed to Manoah the instructions that he had given to his wife. But then the really interesting part and and amazing part of the story is that is his decision that follows to stay and hang out with them. They want to go and, and uh, grab a calf and cook him food. And he says, I'm not going to eat the food you prepare, but I will be with you. And then later on in the story, he 
ascends and they realize they, realize they were with God and Manoah is freaked out because he thinks he's going to die now. <laughs> and then his wife, the voice of reason, as it is so many of us, says, if you, if you were going to die, you would already be dead. <laughs> but I love that story because there was nothing that signified this couple had cleansed themselves and they had, there's nothing in the story that implies that they did that before God decided to be with them and hang out with them. His desire to be with us. The last example I have from the Old Testament, there's, there's many examples of God being, coming and being with us in the Old Testament. These are just three of my favorite. It comes from Zechariah chapter 3, 1 through 5. And I'm going to read that for you. Because it's incredible. Do you even know there was a chapter in Zechariah in the Bible? Okay. This is a a, a vision, uh, and Joshua the high priest is involved in this. So it starts out, the, the story. Then the guiding angel showed me Joshua the high priest representing disobedient, sinful Israel, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at Joshua's hand to be his adversary and to accuse him. And the Lord, this angel of the Lord, capitalizes as a physical physical manifestation of Yahweh. And the Lord said to Satan, rebuke you, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, Even the Lord, now and ever, has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a log snatched and rescued from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy, nauseatingly vile garments and was standing before the angel of the Lord. He spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to Joshua, See, I have caused your wickedness to be taken away from you, and I will clothe and beautify you with rich robes of forgiveness. And I, Zechariah, said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with rich garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. This story gets me every time. Because you have a man standing before God the Father in the midst of his despicable acts. Look at the language in verse 3. Now Joshua with clothed with filthy, nauseatingly vile garments and was standing before God. And Satan was there to accuse him. And the father does not say, go and get yourself cleaned up and then come back. Go and take a shower and then come back. Get down on your knees and confess to me everything that you've done and then we can move forward. No, God says to Satan, I rebuke you. How dare you stand beside my beloved and point out the things that are vile and disgusting about her. Is this beautiful nation, person, son, and daughter not a log snatched from the fire? There were no requirements. God saw through all of the ugliness, the vile, despicable acts that this nation, the son, this daughter had committed. And he called her, my beloved, and said, how dare you notice the rags? God can take care of of the filthy garments. That is not a problem for him. Those can be thrown off in the moment. And in fact, it happens. And the sequence is important because it's after 
that. That he says, throw off the filthy rags and clothe him with rich white garments. There must be something so beautiful and desirable about us. A couple examples from the New Testament. There, we know that the, the, New Testament, the New Testament narrative is, is littered in the Gospels with Jesus going out of his way to hang out and love the underbelly of society. Not requiring them to become holy first. But loving them self-sacrificially and using that to move them toward his ideal. You don't change hearts by changing laws or imposing some kind of power over dynamic. You change hearts by serving self-sacrificially and loving them until the love changes their hearts. Most of us, I venture to say all of us, know the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. In my mind, there's no greater story that if you're looking for a specific example of the Father's attitude towards us that is displayed in this parable. We all know the son goes out, grabs his inheritance and blows it, stacks so much ugliness on top of himself that nobody else could ever see the beauty that is there underneath. And when he comes home, the father, the father runs out to meet him and throws his arms around him, tears streaming from his eyes. It says, my son has returned. Let's celebrate. Not go clean yourself up. Not go take a shower. There's rejoicing because he returned. Again, these examples say to me there must be something so incredibly beautiful about us and desirable about us from conception. So beautiful and so desirable, in fact, that the love and desire of God is not thwarted or affected by the dirt we pile on top of ourselves. There's one last thing, and I'll close on this, that I think we need to deal with. And it's the problem of humility. And I think that we need to deal with this because oftentimes we are so careful not to think too highly of ourselves because we're terrified of pride. And I want to remove that fear and I want to release the freedom. Dan Kent, a friend of mine, and I'm going to try not to butcher this too bad because he's going to be watching. He wrote a book called Confident Humility. And I'm not going to say enough about it to really get myself into trouble with him. But humility, and this is a book about what he believes humility is. Humility to many of us is shame versus pride. Or humility is the opposite of pride. When we have this view of humility, it produces a need to be small. And we often find ourselves in this competition, the lowest person wins. Oh, I'm nothing. Oh, I'm scum. Oh, I'm a piece of gum on the bottom of a shoe dropped in the lake. We've push ourselves lower and lower and the lowest one is the most righteous and the most holy. And I think that this pervades all we do, especially ministry-related assignments, because there's no greater place that we want to make sure that we haven't been affected by pride than when we're up here standing and ministering the beauty of Jesus. I think that pastors oftentimes seek to redirect attention to God 
and worship teams seek to be as invisible as possible. But what if the beauty in us is meant to be seen and celebrated? What if the beauty of us is accentuated by the beauty of God? What if both of them together produce something so beautiful, the participation together is so beautiful, it's the most beautiful thing that we could experience? What if that partnership is like that? That's why I think we need more drum solos. (laughs) Just do it. Jesus tells us what humility is in Matthew 23, 1 through 12, and I'm going to point to verses 8 and 9. Matthew 23, 8 and 9. The titles in this don't matter. There's a principle being explained. Jesus says, Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all equally brothers. Do not call anyone on earth who guides you spiritually your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Like I said, the titles don't really matter. There's a principle here. And that principle is don't exalt yourself above another, right? Don't allow yourself to be called rabbi or call yourself rabbi above. And don't lower yourself below another. Don't call somebody else father, putting them, giving them much greater command over your life than what's appropriate. Don't be higher and don't be lower than what's the solution. You are all equally brothers. Humility equals equality. This revelation allows us to celebrate freely our beauty and also recognize the beauty in us isn't any more beautiful or less beautiful than the person sitting or standing next to us. And we get to exit the lowest one wins game of self-deprecation. It gives us the freedom to fully believe that there's something so beautiful and desirable about, desirable about us. Cover a Lance Maggot, a little mood music. Are they still here? <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> It's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I think that there's an appropriate way to respond to something like this. And I think they both center around self-forgiveness. I think that there's some of us here that need to forgive ourselves for current things that we're holding. And I think that there's some of us here that need to forgive the person we used to be and to release that person from judgment. And then I want to pray over you for a greater revelation of beauty. But I want to lead you and I want to invite you to close your eyes and I want to go through the current grievances first and if there's something that you are still holding yourself accountable for, I want to help you release that. And you can repeat after me silently if that's easiest for you. Father, I thank you for loving me in the midst of the ugly. I recognize that there's things that are keeping me from fully being able to enjoy your presence. And I confess right now whatever I'm holding against myself Jesus, I forgive myself. 
and I release myself from judgment. And I also recognize the hate and judgment that I've carried for the person I used to be. And so I choose to recognize the beauty all the beautiful things that were true about who I used to be. Father, I ask you to help me see those things. Unveil them. And in the name of Jesus, I forgive that person. and I release them from my judgment. Father, make me whole again. The highlight reel of my greatest failures is over. It's been replaced. with a vision of beauty. Father, I ask you to seal what has been done this morning in the hearts of every person gathered here today or watching online. I ask that you break through any cloudiness with a much greater vision of your beauty than has ever been revealed to us. So beautiful that these shadows cannot stand. Every chain broken, every hindrance destroyed, the veil has been torn in two. Pray for fresh eyes to fall over our faces right now in Jesus' name. Your eyes, Lord. We, are, we would see ourselves as though we're looking in a mirror and what's reflected back to us. Kings and queens draped in robes of righteousness. No shadow or darkness exists. Only the beauty, only the beautiful. As we were worshiping, um, at the very end of worship, uh, I saw, I don't know, my mind thinks in pictures sometimes, when, when I was an addict, there were many things that were spoken over me, so even when I gave my life to Jesus in 2008, I would always see addict, like through, through the lens of Jesus, I'm an addict, and it took a long time for the Lord to, to, to kill me, from, like to remove that out of my life. I could see myself as son and not as an addict because it was what was spoken over me for a long time. You're an addict, you're trash, you're bad. So, so all that to say during worship, I saw like what was a banner over people and I saw the Lord, like the banner was removed and there was a new banner. And whether you know it or not, there's banners that are over your life. There are things that have been spoken over you. There are things that you have spoken over yourself and it has become a banner over you. And what I sense the Lord doing is he's removing that and he's, he's, he's writing something new over you. But you have to let it happen. 
That means like next time you look at yourself in the mirror and you begin to think lowly of yourself, you have to say, that's not who I am. You understand, like, even last week when we are talking about taking the lowest place at the table, it's different than what Jesse was talking about. That's preferring your brother. That's not thinking of yourself as a piece of crap. So I, I, I sense that God is doing that and there's, there's action required. So I'm going to say this. There are some of you that God is speaking to you, that, that very thing. There has to be something new reigning over you. And I felt the Lord tell me, as I was saying there, people need to be baptized out of that and into something new. So next week, I'm, we're going to be baptizing, and they're going to put up a number. And you can take a picture, but I, I really believe, listen, I do not care if you've been baptized before. Look into my eyes. I don't care. Like, you have to die to that old thing, and you have to be raised to new life. And that has to, it has to mean something. It has to be real. So I don't care. We already have three or four we're going to baptize. But if that's you, I would encourage you to allow that old thing to die and to walk in the newness of life. You, are you with me? So if, if God is speaking, like if that has been you and you've been thinking of yourself in that way, I would encourage you, bring some clothes next week. We're going to dunk you. <laughs> and you're going to be raised to new life. So let me pray over you. Father, we thank you for everything that you're doing. God, I thank you for your presence in this place. God, I thank you for that word that Jesse gave. Teach us to love ourselves. Teach us to love ourselves. And for those that are supposed to respond, I ask that you would give them the grace and the courage to step into something new in life. Because we're tired of the cycle. And we're wanting to see people step into the newness of life. So we thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. Amen. Can we give Jesse a hand? We love you guys. I want to admonish you. If that's you, get baptized next week. It's not about.